Hey, Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette, and you're listening to Hey, Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. This week's episode is sponsored by Wick Realty. Wick is invested in seeing Amarillo flourish economically and socially for all groups of people, and that includes me. They just helped me sell a house. So if you're buying a home, if you're selling a home, if you're building, if you're looking for investment property, if you're a first-time homeowner, talk to Katie Wick or one of her outstanding agents. That's Wick Realty, W-I-E-C-K Realty.com. Today's guest is Jack Mustard. Jack is a chiropractor and the owner of Mustard Wellness Center on Donovan Circle. He's also an actor, a musician, an occasional model. But locally, one of the ways he's been getting attention the last couple of years is as an advocate for Amarillo's homeless citizen. He directs Mustard Street Charities. Twice a week, Mustard Street cooks hamburgers up to 500 a week for homeless people downtown near Guy and Saunders Resource Center. Mustard Street Charities also offers a jobs program and other kinds of outreach. So Jack and I talked about how he got into his career, how he ended up in Amarillo, and how some of the neediest people in the city set him on an unexpected path. Here's Jack Mustard. Jack Mustard, welcome to the Hamarillo Podcast. Thanks for being here. Hey, thank you. Thank you. Well, so I want to talk about the stuff that you're involved with locally, especially talking about your work with the homeless. But before we even get to that point, let's talk about how you ended up in Amarillo in the first place. So tell me your story. First of all, thank you for having me. Um, I'm a a Borger boy. I graduated from Borger in 1996. And so um, I've lived in the panhandle most, most of my life. Um, I went to WT for three years, went to Abilene Christian one year, and then I transferred to WT. So I've lived, lived in the Amarillo area, you know, for the majority of my life. So Why did you come back to WT? Oh, I, I love WT. I love being home. And plus I was, you know, able to live with my, with my dad while I was going to school, which helped, you know, obviously save money, but, you know, being a part of the, the community, it was, it, it was a good fit for me to come back. And I loved Abilene Christian too. I know there's probably some people that are listening that, you know, went to Abilene Christian. It was a great school and I learned a lot. I didn't pass the physical for football. I had torn my shoulder up. So I went down there to play football oh, okay. and couldn't even pass a physical. At that point, I couldn't even cast a fishing pole without my shoulder going out of place. So, you know, everything happens for a reason. Um, but I was able to come back and, and finish uh, all my science classes up at WT. So. I, I'm interested in in talking to people who live outside Amarillo, you know, in some of the, the smaller or mid-sized towns in the Panhandle, what their perspective on Amarillo was as a kid. I mean, when you were growing up living in Borger, I mean, was it a thing to come to uh-huh. the bigger city on weekends? It, it was a metropolis. I mean, you had the mall, you had places to eat, you had places to go. A lot of the the greatest memories I have is driving over, you know, that hour long trip with your buddies coming over. And, you know, I think that's what most of the parents and especially Morgan worry about is, you know, is all the travel over here. But, you know, on a Saturday afternoon to come over and eat, go to a movie and see, you know, hang out with friends in Amarillo. Absolutely. It was awesome. What was it like playing small town Texas high school football? Oh, I, we loved it. Borger, uh, you know, back in back in that day, we had gone to area both years and, you know, we'd had quite a bit of success, had, had even had success coming over here. And, you know, we beat Tascosa that year. And I still feel like Al Bundy talking about yeah, it, but it's still, it's still, it's still, talking about, though. absolutely. It's still, you know, a small town coming over and playing some of the, the bigger towns, but most of the smaller towns are 4A, 3A. Mm-hmm. And I know the 
the the labeling or the numbering is different. But at the end of the day, the bigger bigger schools, and so to be able to compete on a a, a level with some of the bigger schools was awesome. And then you know, every now and again, have some success was amazing too. So, so at, at what point did you start thinking about chiropractic as a career? I had gone to Abilene Christian and then I started my science classes at, at WT and I sat behind a, a friend that was going to chiropractic school. And at that point I was uh, pre-optometry and pre-med. I didn't know what I wanted to do, but something in the sciences. And uh, anyway, I would sit behind him and we'd kind of laugh at each other, telling him, you know, you're going to be a, dog, a snake oil dog, just laughing. And he, as we talked, we is actually in, in an organic chemistry class and he was a brilliant mind. And I would always ask him, you know, why, why use this for chiropractic? What's, you know, but he was like, there's an amazing science. There's amazing philosophy behind chiropractic that you don't know, but it's all this science put into one. It's all the chemistry and all the physics and all the sciences you just don't know. So instead of me convincing him not to go to chiropractic school, I was in Dallas six months later starting chiropractic school. And it was a, you know, a huge blessing. But I remember my father's a pharmacist. And so I remember, um, you know, having to explain to my family that, in fact, it was not optometry or, you know, medicine. It was chiropractic. Um, But it was it was a good fit for me. And I, I definitely think that anybody needs to find their way. And, you know, wherever they go, their path, they've got to be happy with it. But it's got to be their decision. Is that something that is discussed in, you know, once you go to chiropractic school, because you have, you know, maybe that, that preconceived idea that you had growing up mm-hmm. about it, is, is that talked about when you go through the training and you start to think about opening a practice? Here's what you might, you know, encounter from people. Here's how you overcome some of those. Oh, ab- I think absolutely. And, um, you know, the, the climate has changed a lot, you know, natural health care. It's not so taboo. And then a lot of the challenges with regular, you know, medications is kind of, you know, in the United States, we have a great acute care system. If somebody's hurt in a car accident, we have the best system set to take care of those people. However, a lot of times people, when there becomes a problem in their body, they use physiological regulating medications. And so I think there's a a difference between long-term use of medication for regulating things that, you know, whether it would be an exercise or stress management or chiropractic that would change the dynamics of their health versus someone being, you know, falling off a ladder and breaking their arm. And so I think there's a place for everything. The the one thing that I did appreciate in Dallas was the integrative component of, of, of care versus, you know, a lot of times in Amarillo, we see, you know, whether there's a chiropractic office or a medical office or a, a physician's office, you know, what if you had a place where you could go where there was multiple practitioners and at the end of the day had the same goals and so anyway, right. that would be my dream for this place is, you know, that, that eventually we begin to integrate some of those right. systems in place. You know, if someone is in pain, they go see a chiropractor, doesn't work. They go, you know, there may even be an acupuncturist on hand, but all of these people work together in different philosophies mm-hmm. for a, a greater good. I love Instead that. Instead of writing off one of them and segmenting out, you know, oh, that, absolutely. That there's some, some cross-cultural you know, the, the, there. There's a, the same physiology that a medical doctor studies is the same physiology that an acupuncture studies or a chiropractor. It's just the art behind the, the science. But at the end of the day, the same nerves flow. And I think that's kind of where we all have to start. Did you always intend to come back to this area once you finished school? <clears throat> no, I had. It, it's kind of an interesting. I had uh, in chiropractic school, I was flying down to Cancun, Mexico. And we're talking about a lot and maybe now my parents probably, but I was doing mission trips down there. I'd go down there and I, they'd pick me up from the airport 
and I'd go to the hotel, and then the next morning they'd take me. I don't know where this, we're talking about the, the worst part of Kent. We're talking about steel buildings, lepers. Yeah. Dirt. Not, not giant hotels on the beach. Miles and miles away from the lagoon, miles away from the strip. So if, you, if anybody's been to the strip and then been downtown to the, the, old, the old circle area, the old plaza right. area, keep going past that, and then three or four or five miles minus all the great big enclaves are you know, some of the, the poorest people. But this chiropractor would take these American, young American chiropractors and get them off the plane and stick them right down there, make them dress up with ties. I mean, I remember looking down and my whole shirt was just sweat. I mean, it was just, it was awful. And they didn't care. Hundreds of people would surround these tables and no x-rays, no evaluation, just get on the table. They need to be adjusted, adjust them. Talking about charity later on, I wonder if that had, you know, didn't have an effect on me long term, but I had gone uh, to get a physical, and this was about six months out of chiropractic school, and I had uh, skin cancer on my ears. Mm. And so I had, you know, gone down there and not put any, everybody does that when they're young, you yeah. don't think, but I got skin cancer, so I couldn't go down there and live. And anyway, I had moved back up for a small time to stay with my with my mom and my parents after I had, so I'd moved from Dallas to Lubbock to prepare to, to go down there and then I came up here, and that's when I found out that I had skin cancer, and it was a good possibility that I didn't need to be in that kind of sun. And so I had to, you know, it hurt, but I had to make some decisions for myself and my family and think I made the good decision. And I opened a, a small practice up here. It was 2004 when okay. all this happened, so 15 years ago. Tell me, tell me about, you know, sort of the business aspect of that, because Amarillo is a place with a pretty good number of chiropractors. I mean, you're, you're not... Yeah. You know, you're not coming into a place that that has this this large hole in the market. So, how do you get in there? How did you find customers and, and build up your practice? I spent the first ten years of my practice like I stayed open on uh, Thanksgiving, like even on Christmas. Sometimes we had an acute care clinic. But to me, the most important thing is not to acquire new patients, but to keep the old patients. Like we, most of my patients that come don't go to other chiropractors. I like. I always talk about, you know, if someone comes in to your office or comes into your business, if you take care of them, you have a patient for a lifetime or you have a customer for a lifetime. So that's been my policy from the start. And so I never had a whole lot of problems building. But at the end of the day, you know, running a practice and maintaining, you know, an office is a challenge, whether it was for a young man or someone who's a little bit older, it's still it's still a challenge, but a blessing. I love what I do. Do you feel like your practice is still growing or because your focus is on, you know, maintaining the same patients, has it just sort of stayed the same? Oh, absolutely not. No, it, uh, what happens is, say, for example, you may not go to a chiropractor right now and say someone talks about going to see Dr. Jack. You say, ah, I don't know. Next thing you know, you hurt your shoulder and you're like, oh, by the way, who is this? Who is this person that helped you? And, so, and then you call me up. And so that's a referral-based chiropractic office. But I think a referral-based system for whatever business I think is amazing, you know, be open to tell people, Hey, if I did you a good job, make sure you tell somebody about it. Cause they may not, they may not know, and it may be able to help them too. So, so. it's, it's more of an organic thing where, where you build those relationships, your customers relationships are saying, this are is, everything. this is my guy. Relationships are everything. You know, I had a friend tell me one time we were talking and he was like, don't you, don't you understand why I drive across town to get my tires changed? They shake my hand. I can, I know the taste of the coffee you know, they're always so good to me. It's like, it doesn't matter who else is like, I'm going to that tire shop. And I'm like, man, that's a, 
that's powerful, you know? And so I want to be that guy as it relates to the spine, the nerve and pain and et cetera. Is that something that is a little more prevalent in Amarillo than let's say you had remained in Dallas in the Metroplex, you know, okay. in this huge area is, is Amarillo small enough that you can have that, that guy across town that does your tires or, you I know, I think so. I think so. And even in the, the bigger communities, when you, when you finally settle into your home, it was, it's interesting how, cause I lived in North Irving and North Irving is considered nothing special by all, but it's, it, it is a, an amazing blue collar community. They are the, the backbone of Dallas. They grind out, you know, that's a, a heavily working class community. And once you get into that community, there's a big high school there and you go down a mile, there's a Kroger's restaurants, shopping malls. So really the, the say, just like, you know, here at my office, we're, we're next to Wolfland. We're kind of in that area, that Paramount area. In Dallas, the same way, it's just, you know, it, there's there's city everywhere, but you end up living close right. and things kind of close down. And then there's your local chiropractor right on the corner. But I'm glad I'm here. I, I knew I, I knew starting out there would be problems just because there are so many chiropractors mm-hmm. here. But when you want to live somewhere, you, you make it work and you, you go from there. Tell me about some of the other things you do. I, I know that uh, you sort of sideline as as an actor. You told me earlier you were you're kind of a C list actor oh. locally. <laughs> is, is that I mean is that something that's just sort of a hobby or? I started playing uh, I started playing music and acting again in two thousand three when I lived in Dallas. I played uh, in a band. I played in a, a acoustic guitar for a a band that played in coffee shops and whatnot. So when I started my pride, basically had to put music up for ten years and I. I tell everybody that that's important to do. Like you have to take care of the most important things first. But 2013, I released some music onto the internet, which took off a little bit. It was playing. It's funny. It was playing more in Europe than in Amarillo. There was a time period where I couldn't find venues here to let me play, mm-hmm. but there was active music playing on podcasts in London. So it was always that crazy irony you know here as far as my relationship to Amarillo with music this was 2015 we kind of started having some success I started playing downstate in uh, Dallas and Austin markets and had played the house of blues in Dallas which was pretty cool this was to yeah late 2015 and about six months down the road we wanted to do a music some type of festival that was related to some type of charities we'd done it before where we in 2014, done a book drive, four or 5,000 books to the Amarillo School District. But mm-hmm. So you came to see bands play all day, but instead of bringing money, you brought books, and it brought the community, got the community involved, and we've done turkey drives. But I'm, I had met a, a guy named Chris Seawright of Amarillo Housing first, and I called him and I told him about you know my idea, and he was like, well, come down and see me sometime. So this was about 11, 12 months ago. We went down to... Uh, I took my son down. We went down, and it was a real cold, icy day. And he was in this uh, warming station. This it was a truck, but it had some type of warming devices in there. And I sat amongst uh, people, some homeless people, and you know, as I sat around them, it just it broke my heart. I mean, to the to the core. And I wondered if if that's what if that's what the whole the whole system with Chris was. He was like, you know, you come down and see what I'm doing for yourselves, and then you can make a decision you know, on how to help. But, you know, from then on, it had a, it had an effect on me that I'll never, I'll never forget it. And so it was enough for me to, 
eventually sober my mind and, and, and quit drinking and focus and try to help some of these people that I, I thought I could possibly help, you know, using my name, you know, which was tough because of the nature of the, the environment, you know, mm-hmm. the name, because you're dealing with homeless people. But, you know, why put your name on something like that? It was it was critical to me to just overdo it in mass, you know, to bring hundreds of people down, not one. If I could get one person, I could get hundreds and I could get thousands. What I saw had scared me and, and hurt me and broke me so much that it nothing nothing had mattered. So for and people so, that, that don't know what you ended up doing, you know, after that encounter with Chris, tell me what happened. What, what was the timeline there? A, a couple weeks later, I went and got this old grill out of um, out of storage and had them take it down to the guy on Saunders. At that point, I had started going and doing chiropractic adjustments down there. So the ball was already rolling. I was like, man, you know, how can I help? You know, he's like, well, people are sleeping on the streets. They're in pain. Mm-hmm. You could adjust them. So I went down there and I was adjusted. And then uh, on the opposite weeks, I took a, a grill down there. And the very second, and I'm not, I can't cook. The very <laughs> second that meat hit this grill, there were hundreds of people lined up. And I have pictures of it. And it was, to me, it just, it put me boots up. I didn't know, I, it intimidated me. Meat was falling through the grill. I had this little tiny grill. I was so unprepared. At that point, too, the city, um, the city, the, another reason I put my name on it, too, because it looked like at that point, because we were basically having lettuce and tomatoes cut outside of the guy on because there was no place to cut it. They said they were going to come get us. Like the, there was a contentious nature downtown. Was it because so, the numbers were larger than like, say somebody had a backyard cookout, you know, the, the city is not worried about that, but you were set up in a public space and there were this I'm, many people coming. I'm I mean, not, I'm not sure that I'm not sure that, I mean, to see that many people lined up, it's hard to close your eyes to the problem. And I wonder us being down there, didn't highlight some of the problems it put us directly in the middle of a you know a, a lot of politics which we just weaved and wind i mean it didn't it didn't affect me at all it didn't matter you know when you champion someone someone's cause you don't you don't care what the ramifications were and i just had always i just thought you know i have five thousand friends on my facebook i just would always say hey you know let the city know like if i see them pull up we all are going live we will mm-hmm. do it you know and i always would let them know it's like you know it's real important. It's real important that these people get fed. The Salvation Army is uh, about four blocks from the Guyon. So we're not talking about people that, you know, may have lost their job a couple days ago and are struggling. We're talking about chronic mental, a lot of people who are, don't have limbs, people that have mental cases, that people that you can't expect to go walk over to the Workforce Commission and, you know, get a job or, or to go get their house or to function. Those people needed drastic, drastic help. And so at that point, being a part of that and start cooking burgers and serving food became not an obsession, but it became something that our team was going to do at all costs. And it didn't matter. It was just like, we have to do this. It has to be done. Tell so, me, what, what do you feel, you know, because you mentioned the chronic nature and there are people that had mental health problems and, and like very big problems. Yes, sir. What... Did just that that simple act of setting up and starting to cook hamburgers provide for them? What do you what do you think was the draw? I mean, obviously being hungry, there's a draw for for burgers, but you kept coming back, you know, week after week. That consistency, yeah. 
you're doing this one kind thing on Man, a regular I, and basis. This, and this would be this would my only pushback would be would be this. I had a, a guy as I was handing him a burger. I walked over and I I handed him a burger and he said, you know, he said I got to tell you something. He said there was this one time. There was this one time. There was a guy in a business suit. I was standing on the side of the road, and he was a good-looking guy, and he had a business suit on, and you could tell he was a man that that just made it happen. And he looked at me and asked me how my day was. And you know what? That changed my whole day. And I still remember that. And I just, like, it hit me. I'm like, man, that's, that's probably that's the most powerful thing that you could possibly do is hit them in the core of that pain. You gotta, you gotta hand them a burger. You gotta get out of your car. You gotta cook that food with them. They, they, before they even eat, they smell the food for 20, 30 minutes. They're in a line. They know, they know us. They know me. They know me by name. That was the push is to basically get it in a cookout form where they become human again. Yeah, it's a humanity thing. Just oh, it's acknowledging hum- the, we're both humans here. The Let's- demoralization of homelessness is is horrible. I mean, a lot of people don't feel that. I'm not void of a hug today. You know, a lot of people before nine o'clock in the morning, they've gone through so much struggle. And for somebody to say, hey, you're important. That's awesome. So tell me when it changed from, I'm going to set up this grill and I'm going to cook these burgers into something that became, all right, I, I've got to organize this thing. We've got to become, you know, an official charity or we, we've got to make this sort of more structured. When did that happen? I'm sure a lot of the the people that in our volunteer system that hear this, if I tried to explain my structure, they would probably laugh. What I said was, I, I want this organization to be like a head of a spear. I want it to fly through there fast. I don't want to itemize. The only reason why I itemize the number of burgers is because it's so expensive. Each each time we cook, you know, 200 burgers, you know, we're looking at 200, 250 dollars. And if those are community donated money, you know, it's important to to try to quantify at least for people so they know we're doing what we're doing thus but we don't have a whole lot of structure once that spear is released it's deadly but we'll hit hard you know it's not one burger it's 500 it's keeping a day room open for hundreds of people and so but behind that there's probably a lot of not disorganization but you know you make a choice to be extremely organized or you make a choice to be on the front lines when it's time to fight. And that's what all of these people in my organization, no matter if it's cold, no matter if it's hot outside, it doesn't matter. These, you know, they're down there ready to cook because they know that these people kind of depend on them. How so, many volunteers do you have at this point? Uh, there's hundreds that come and go. You know, the one thing that's tough about volunteership is, you know, people's lives, they, it, people come and go. Mm-hmm. And, that's, and that the, that's the painful thing. But what, what happens is their lives are touched. And then they go about their lives with a different perspective. You cannot come down to a feeding. You cannot come down to a homeless shelter without your perspective changing. So hundreds of people come through. How many, you know, weekly, monthly, I, I would say a couple hundred at least, hundreds. But how many people uh, regularly, that's a little bit different. It, it kind of comes and go. I have team members that are there regularly, but then also too, we have volunteers that come and go try to make a system for people. Mm -hmm. You know, if you have a weekend and your kid, you have your kid on the weekend, you don't have anything to do, come down and come down to the home. There's no reason not to, and there's nothing that would prevent you. There's no uh, jagged edges. Come down and and be a part of it. 
for somebody who might be interested in getting involved, I mean, what, what would you tell them? What are the needs that, that you have or what are the places that, that you could use some more, some more people? We, we need assets. We need volunteers. The, the guy on Saunders is a resource center downtown. Mm-hmm. And it is a beautiful, beautiful, most people, it, it's, it's one of those places that's loomed in the darkness of the, I, I, I love that place. And I love, I love him. There was a, a guy named Guy on Saunders and he was notorious for going down amongst some of the toughest people, some of the, the chronic homeless and drinking coffee with them, playing games, you know, stuff that was outside the realm of normal. And so all of these people that had, had came into my life, none, nothing was normal. You know, Christy, right, hundreds of people going into homes. You know, Amarillo brown bag runs, mm-hmm. 50,000 bags of food. You know, Amanda Hunter with Church Cross Camp, you know, sacrificing everything. I just, I had been around, I'd been around a lot of titans. I'd immediately... When I was brought into it, there was never any mediocrity. There was always these these people that lifted me, but it was never anything mediocre. I was always like, man, strive to a level that that if you think you can do it, do it. Mm-hmm. And so it was powerful because there was never any. It was always these these people that were titans that were just able to handle so much and were so amazing and so powerful and so beautiful is the way they they treated the the homeless population i met all of them in a a month or two period and so it just it put me it put me boots up and it made me want to do something that i could do and bring a bunch of buddies down to the guy on i knew kind of like what chris did i knew if i could get them down there just once however i was going to do it if i could just get them down there the system would take itself off and it would start it would start rolling and so it's taken twenty thousand turns hmm. 20,000 at least 20,000 duplicated systems where we refocus and refunction and and recreate but it's starting to take off and so like even like the guy on Saunders now has you know a fully staffed day room which is awesome people can go in the day like right now you know with the Salvation Army closed there's nowhere for people to go and so to keep people out of the Civic Center and the the library, they're at the guy on Saunders. And so those people down there are, are, are just angels. You, you yeah. talked about how, you know, just getting involved there has shifted your own perspective. Clearly, it, it makes you emotional to talk about some of these things. So what have you learned? How has your perspective changed maybe on, on homelessness or on the needs of people in that, that position? It, it's tough to talk about because we're talking about a, a family legacy, but I had never really, I'd never really seen my dad in a system give any type of any type of love to someone that was struggling there was always a, a kind of a skeptical criticism and to me especially looking over and seeing my son see the same see the same things i had seen to change to put your name on a charity you know like i said it was tough because i mean it's a it's a loaded it's a loaded gun but the the change of perspective and legacy for my family you know, is is completely different. You know, it'll never be, my son will never be in his mind. He'll never question whether he should look at a, a homeless guy in the eye and say, hey, man, you're loved. Let me help you out. What are you doing? What's the problem? You know, he'll never, ever walk by somebody when he can help somebody mm-hmm. and not do it. He won't. That's the new legacy. So changing that over to me 
in this lifetime was is probably the the most uplifting thing I could could say I, I I did because even in the mind of my my children the perspective on life and people and love and how you apply Christianity or even apply your spiritualism has completely changed. What do people not understand about maybe Amarillo's homeless population? You know, because we we have preconceived ideas. You know, you think, well, these people are homeless because they're not working hard or they're not willing to to do this. What do we not understand not having that day-to-day interaction? I'll tell you a story about a, a guy named Claude, and we he had participated in our jobs program. He's in Cactus now, but chiropractic school in Parker, there's a lot of different dialects. People come from all over the world. That's what they're passionate about. So I always had, with a real West Texas draw, everybody always laughed at my voice and vice versa. I always could tell people who are from the Northeast. Mm-hmm. I mean, we stick out like sore thumbs. It's just So I'm walking by Handing Burgers one day, and I hear this guy with this real pronounced Northeastern accent. I mean, you can tell he's not from here. And I looked over and I'm like, man, where are you from and what's up? And he was like, well, I'm a young man. My mom told me that I'm never, ever going to get a chance to ever do this again, that I need to get in my car if my dream is to go see the Grand Canyon. Go to Route 66 and go to the Grand Canyon and see the Route 66, son, if that's what you want to do. Well, he got in his car and he made it to Shamrock, Texas, where it blew up. And so he had very little money on it. He was able to get a, a bus pass to Amarillo, which that's the only basically town that has any type of homeless outreach mm-hmm. for in a star. If you look at Amarillo, you've got Albuquerque, you've got Dallas, Fort Worth, huge homeless population. You've got Oklahoma City, you've got Denver. So in the middle of this great big star, you have Amarillo. Most people don't realize how much of a struggle it is if you get stuck here is to get out of here. Yeah. So if you had 150 people, say, that are in a hunger line, 50 to 75 of those people are not part of any headcount, yet they take assets, whether it's a cheeseburger or a place at the Salvation Army. But these people are a silent population. If you came in riding a train from Fort Worth, there's no way to extrapolate the data that you were here. Yeah. And so the big thing that I would hope people would take is there's, there's hundreds with thousands of people right in front of our face. They just end up here. That end up here. Immigrants. Somebody wants to help an immigrant right here. You can do that right here. So what, what happened with Claude? He ended up going through a work program that, that we put on and ended up getting a job at JBS Cactus. And he's four or five months into a job. They were able to provide him an ID system. And because he did good with his work, he got transferred out of Amarillo to housing in Dumas. Okay. So we can earn his money. And I told him, I said, you know, if you want to work at JBS and live in Cactus the rest of your life, a kid that used to live in, you know, the Northeast big towns, if that's what floats your boat do, or you get out of this homeless situation, you work, and then the next thing you know, you're back on the road driving to, to L.A. or wherever you want to go. But you continue your dream, you continue your path, you got to do something you have to get out of this area. The longer somebody is homeless, the longer, the, the, the greater chance that they're going to have severe, severe issues getting back into society, IDs, ability to find a job, the ability to get to workforce commissions and all, you know, all the dynamic things that has to happen even to get a job. It's almost virtually impossible once IDs and social security cards go. Yeah. 
As I mentioned earlier, this episode is sponsored by Wick Realty, a longtime sponsor of Hey Amarillo. Their sponsorship comes courtesy of my Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash heyamarillo, where individual listeners like you can support the show on a monthly basis and help me keep making this podcast, which I offer for free. Now, one of the support tiers is for $100 a month. It's a sponsorship tier, and it's perfect for small businesses. It gets you a monthly ad like you heard earlier for WIC, and it's an economical and ongoing way for businesses like WIC Realty to stay in front of my listeners to support a local creative product. So to learn more, go to patreon.com slash heyamarillo. That's Patreon with an E. And just a note from me as the podcast continues here, toward the end of that first recording session with Jack, I experienced a catastrophic equipment failure. Actually, it wasn't that catastrophic, although it really annoyed me. Um, So in order to continue recording our conversation, I had to make the switch from professional microphones to the voice memos app on my iPhone. Uh, It's not ideal, but it works. You can still hear us. Uh, And I wasn't about to take away from Jack his opportunity to do the eight straight section. So here it is sounding a little bit different. Okay, I'm back with Jack Mustard. Jack, this is the part of the show I call Eight Straight. I'm going to ask you eight straight questions. Your job as my guest is to answer those in whatever degree of detail you want to. So <laughs> okay. you are known for uh, serving hamburgers to the homeless population. So I want to ask you this. Where can you get the best hamburger in town? My favorite place to get a hamburger in town is Acapulco's. Really? Absolutely. A Mexican food restaurant. Absolutely. It's it's a big old beautiful burger. And, and, and if you like spicy food, you can, get, you can make it spicy. They will spice it up. But it is an absolute monster burger. My son and I split it up. Um, you can get sour cream on it. It's a, absolutely fantabulous. But also Moondoggies. Uh, they serve amazing food. So... And that's a pizza place. Yeah, they but they have all sorts of goodies. But okay. probably the the one place that I've eaten with my family and that I I love to go when is when it's hamburger time um, is Acapulco's. All right, what's your favorite street in Amarillo? It's Polk Street. I love Polk Street. I love downtown, and I mean I love the city. I love the city. I, when I'm in Dallas, I, I'm down in the city. You know, no matter what the situation is, I love being downtown, and you know I love love downtown Amarillo. And Polk Street has changed quite a bit in the last year or two. What do, do you see it continuing to uh, to improve to get back? Absolutely, absolutely. Now let's just talk about Oklahoma City. Yeah. They, you know, fifteen twenty years ago, the thought of going downtown Oklahoma City, I mean, it was almost uninhabitable. You know, look what they've done. And so I know, I know, there's a lot of investment, and a lot of things that a lot of challenges. I mean, minus the politics, you're you're building you're building downtown. But yeah, it's looking better. And to bring people downtown to have an active nightlife active arts and sciences it's only better for the community to have those things to pull people in you know from out of town or when people uh, live here so they can have uh, good experiences and fun things to do what does this area have too much of what does this area have too much of i don't really i'll I'll pass on that i don't really know (laughs) I, i don't know what it has too much of um in thinking about i really never not not enough information to process you know i I love the people, and I don't really, I don't really have have an opinion about that. Okay, so we'll go to the the opposite of that. What does this area not have enough of? Uh, I would like to see a more flourishing music scene. 
there's nothing more there's nothing more amazing than walk you know down the the streets of Austin or um, or you know Dallas for that matter, but really like the streets of Austin and see live music venues, people live in, people experience in life, having a great time. I would like to see more of that so the community come out can come out and, you know, enjoy, uh, you know, live music and different entertainment options just to keep building the, you know, be- because we talked about, you know, Borg, a lot of these towns, they don't have these type of outlets for entertainment, you know, so to improve the entertainment and the, the music scene here, I think would be great. How do you describe Amarillo to people outside the area? Uh, hardworking, uh, blue-collar, uh, family-oriented. You know, a lot of times when you, when you go to a chiropractic seminar, you talk a little bit about where you're from and what you do. And I always, you know, reference, you know, a, a lot of the people that I see are really blue-collar and they work really hard. A lot of chronic repetitive movements, that yeah, kind of yeah. stuff. And so, no, uh, hardworking and, and uh, family when was the last time you went to Cadillac Ranch? It's been a few years. It's been a few years. Uh, the attraction to that, it's amazing. You can drive down off Ford anytime and see, you know, hundreds of people throughout the day come and go. It's been a couple years, but... Other than your own, what's your favorite nonprofit in the area? I want to give a shout out to Amarillo Housing first and Amarillo Brown Bag Runs. They've been amazing to us. They've, they've lifted us up and they've been amazing. But I, you know, in, in thinking about the the charities and 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 how all of the the nonprofits the one group of nonprofits that usually doesn't get a lot of attention are uh, nonprofits for animals. Yeah, it is the it is the least payoff. It is the absolutely the most painful thing that you could do in service to watch creatures die. Yeah, and to to give your all and to know that that you're still going to fail. So I. The animals. Is there and, one specifically? That no, just, there's, there's not. I just I think any time people in Amarillo see um, people in in animal rescue or in you know chair nonprofit charity rescue and those those people are absolutely angels okay and then what's your go-to Amarillo coffee shop I love roasters I love roasters they they know me when I pull through bright and early in the morning get that triple shot of espresso yeah. And they always ask me, are you sure you don't want anything in it? And I'm like, no, it's perfect, just as is. And so definitely roasters. Um, and that concludes the eight straight questions. Jack, I like to end by asking my guests to endorse something. So what's something related to the area that you would want other people to see or to experience or, or, know, or know about? There's a lot of great places and people in this town. There was a, there was a guy named in the 70s and 80s named uh, Guyon Saunders. Mm-hmm. He was... Um, a, a philanthropist, amazing man. Started he, corporate systems back in the day. A big computer company. Yeah, uh, yes. Yeah. So his he wasn't he wasn't just a, a a guy that that went down. I mean, he was a brilliant man and had lots of assets and lots of friends and lots of family. And he used those to collectivize a system where a big old building where you have multiple multiple people co- vendors. Businesses, charities come in to basically pull people in to help other people. A virtual system where it wasn't just one charity or wasn't just guy on himself. It was a a, a, a collectivization of, of of a lot of different people and a lot of different systems. And I want to give a shout out to him. He's no longer with us, and I just. You know, the, the Guy on Saunders Resource Building downtown is an absolutely beautiful place. It saved hundreds and hundreds of thousands of lives. And so, Jack Mustard, thanks so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. 
Thanks, brother. Yeah. And that concludes the episode. I want to say thanks to Jack Mustard for the conversation. You can learn more about his practice by looking up Jack Mustard Chiropractor on Facebook. And there are plenty of news features online about Mustard Street Charities and the work that he's doing there. Thanks to Katie and Seth Wick of Wick Realty for supporting the show for a long time. They were one of my very first sponsors at the beginning of this podcast in the earliest days. I really appreciate those guys. Um, Executive producers of Hey Amarillo include Patrick Burns, Wes Reeves, Jennifer Callahan, Ryan Pennington, Katie Linger, Corey Burns, Daniel Davis, and Wilson Lemieux. You can help produce the show, too, by visiting patreon.com slash heyamarillo. Thanks for listening. My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week.